If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. that by moralizing the origins of the war, the British and American liberals were as responsible as anybody, perhaps more responsible than anybody else, for moralizing the peace. That was Peter Clarke explaining how warfare has shaped modern history. Initially, when it very first opened, it wasn't kind of the spectacular animals that it became known for as it developed and as the public were let in more. So I think the very first animal they had was a vulture that was donated by an anatomist who had used this vulture to eat the corpses that he'd been, he'd been working on. And that was Isabel Sharman describing the development of London Zoo. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of February 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Professor Peter Clark, a historian formerly of Cambridge University who specialises in the 20th century. He's the author of a new book, published today, entitled The Locomotive of War, Money, Empire, Power and Guilt, which, borrowing a phrase from Leon Trotsky, shows how conflict had a profound impact on many different areas. Peter paid a visit to our studio recently, where he spoke to our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Your book is named after the quote, the famous quote by Leon Trotsky, um, war is a locomotive of history. Um, what, what, what did Trotsky mean by that? And what, what were you thinking when you adopted that title for your book? Well, I think it's an interesting phrase, and I'd, I'd known about it for many years. But actually, when I looked it up and found the exact source, I think I saw that Trotsky meant very specifically that the impact of war could push history forward in the direction that he wanted, which was, of course, a communist-style revolution like they'd had in Russia. But I quickly discovered also that he hadn't really just had Russia in mind. He'd had Britain and America in mind. He was 
trying to look in the aftermath of the First World War at the way that war might have created a, a situation of revolutionary potential in Britain and America. Now, we all know that didn't happen. Yeah. But I think the question is still worth posing in a more open-ended way. What is the impact of war, especially in the 20th century, which had these two world wars that transformed not only Europe, but, but the whole world? And, and you chose, um, you've chosen five individuals to, to tell that story. Um, you didn't actually focus on Russia, though, did you? Interestingly, because the, obviously the quote came from Trotsky. What made you choose the five characters and you know, who are they? I was interested more in the implications of what Trotsky was saying than in looking at the Russian situation mm. on which I don't have any particular expertise myself, interesting as it is. Because what Trotsky meant was that Russia will fall first, but then because the skein of history, as he put it, is unwinding from the wrong end, when we get to the right end of the spool, mm. it will be the advanced capitalist economies of Britain and America that will be the ones that will fall here. So my attention was very much focused on British and American politics and on some of the, uh, the leading statesmen and also one famous economist, John Maynard Keynes, as well. And the other, the other four individuals you've chosen are were Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, starting with with Britain, then um, so tell me a little about a bit about Lloyd George and how you think war impacted some of his decisions and, and you know his his rule. Lloyd George is an extraordinary man. Had an extraordinary career. Um, Winston Churchill, at the time of Lloyd George's death in 1945, said he was the greatest Welshman since the Tudors. Well, I think he gave the Tudors a run for their money there. Perhaps the most, the greatest Welshman uh, of all time in, in his impact on this uh, country. He came from humble circumstances, but my word, he made the most of them when he told the story himself. It was quite a privileged upbringing in a way in the, in the little village in North Wales where he was brought up. And everybody there, uh, everybody who was anybody, was was both uh, nonconformist in religion and liberal in politics. So no mystery at all about where G Lloyd George is coming from in the mm. first instance. What happens later is another matter. He, he made his reputation as a backbench MP opposing the Boer War in South Africa that Britain fought uh, between 1899 and 1902. And his reputation as a pro-Boer in opposing the war here gave many people at the time that he was some sort of pacifist. Well, we all learned better on that one when the First World War came along. So, yes, I was going to come on to that, actually. He, you know, he does come across as somebody who was quite anti-war. Um, so, you know, when, when the war came along, how, how did he react to it? I think the important thing is not to think whether he was anti-war or pro-war, mm. but to... Remember that he looked at all of this in a very moralistic way. Mm. There was always the good guys and the bad guys. And what he was saying really at the time of the Boer War was the Boers are the good guys and the British um, are actually the bad guys here. What he's doing in 1914 is to look through the same spectacles 
but to decide that now it's the Germans who are the bad guys, especially and crucially when they violate Belgian neutrality in their uh, attempts to invade France. And so it's a morally charged issue. And my suggestion is that Lord George was typical of liberals in that period, both in Britain and in the United States, in adopting uh, a view of war almost as a sort of morality play in which sorting out the good guys from the bad guys was always the main question. Yeah, I mean, morals is a, is a theme that you, you look at um, throughout the book, isn't it? Um, and the impact on you know of war on kind of, you know, post-war society. Um, so what, what kind of impact do you think war has had on kind of morals in British society? You have to remember that I'm looking mainly at liberals, both mm. British liberals and American liberals. And I'm saying that the strong common theme that unites them here, and I trace it back to Gladstone in the 19th century, is the way that they see international relations, not in terms of power plays, but in terms of a great, if you like, morality play uh, enacted before our eyes, in which we have to choose who are the good guys and who are the bad guys here. And that is a theme which I think is, is very important in an ongoing way in understanding how within this tradition of Anglo-American liberalism, this is a very common perspective on war. You can see it, if you like, in our own day in the way that Tony Blair took a very moral view mm. as to why the British and Americans should invade Iraq, something of which perhaps... Um, he had reason to, 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 to rue afterwards. But I think this, uh, even if it was a great mistake, there's no need to uh, doubt his sincerity about that. And he was not alone. He was drawing on a, con on a tradition and he was self-conscious in looking back to Gladstone here, a very long tradition within Anglo-American liberalism. Can you go into a bit more detail about Gladstone? You mentioned his, his shadow was kind of thrown over uh, governments that came after. Um, in, in what sense was this? Gladstone, of course, was the first great leader of a united Liberal Party as it emerged in Britain in the 1860s and 1870s. Uh, he, he was prime minister for the first time between 1868, 1874, and at the age of 65, he retired to the backbenchers. But what happens next seems to me to be the significant thing because he's brought back into politics in the 1870s by the atrocities that the Turkish Empire, the Ottomans, had committed against their Bulgarian subjects. And it's these Bulgarian atrocities that draw Gladstone back into a crusading role in politics, in taking up this as a great issue of right and wrong, enlisting a politics of conscience, as he put it himself, a politics of virtuous passion. And I think this sets the mould. This establishes the parameters for the way that many liberals, both in Britain and the United States, looked at politics, especially international politics, later on. Mm. Um, you... It, it, you, you credit money, empire, and and power as all being factors for change, but you also um, you also name guilt um, as an, another factor for change. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit? I think money, empire, and power are all very important subjects, and they are, in a sense, what you'd expect a historian <laughs> tackling the uh, story of, uh, of of the impact of war to be talking about mainly. I've introduced guilt because I'm saying 
Here is this moral dimension which played uh, a very important part in motivating uh, many of the uh, British and American leaders concerned and it established the tone in which they talked about these issues before the public. So the war became not just um, uh, an opportunity for uh, the participants to fight it out, but a, a moral contest between them for the high ground here. And just as the British took a very moral view of the origins of the war, they attributed it to the uh, German invasion of, of Belgium. So at the end of the war, they likewise took the view that the moral basis of making uh, the peace was the crucial thing. And in all of this, if you're going to make a morality play, if you like, of these uh, great international issues, identifying the guilty party is crucial here. And hence we get the link with the attribution of guilt to Germany and the bitter feelings that uh, being castigated as the guilty party aroused in German society after the First World War. Which you think then contributed to the, the rise of Hitler? Undoubtedly, these feelings about guilt and the fact that the Germans had been forced to accept their guilt in signing the treaty, undoubtedly this helped fuel the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. And in, in, a, in an important sense, it raised the stakes far beyond uh, any payment of reparations or um, other adjustments uh, that were the consequences of Germany losing the war. Is this this sort of sense of um, morality something that can be seen with the two American individuals that, that you've chosen for the book? I think it's very clear in the case of Woodrow Wilson that he looked at these great international issues as issues of right and wrong and very self-consciously drew inspiration from Gladstone here. I think it's not often realised, I don't think I fully realised it myself, how deeply impregnated um, Woodrow Wilson's thinking was by his knowledge of Gladstone, his schoolboy hero, if you like. At the age of 16, he pinned up a portrait of Gladstone on the wall. Wow. As a student, he wrote essays on Gladstone. He constantly referred back to Gladstone. And this is a strand, I don't say it goes totally unmentioned in, in, the, in the history books and, and biographies, but it's never, to my mind, been given its full significance. One of your five um, was uh, John Maynard Keynes, um, who, who sort of stands out a little bit as being, not being um, a leader of a, a country. What made you choose him um, as one of your five? When I was looking at the changes that war had brought in the 20th century, one of the biggest changes is clearly in economic terms. And in particular, if you look at um, the impact uh, on Anglo-American um, uh, politics and uh, economic thinking, the impact of the Second World War can be fully seen in, in the way that a liberal consensus based on full employment and uh, universal welfare provision is a theme that runs through both British and American policy here. And if we 
want a shorthand way of describing this, it's often called the Keynesian consensus. So what I wanted to do was to build Keynes into the story to see how far his ideas were indeed percolating into policy in this period, and most important of all, to try and explain how this was happening. And how far were his ideas sort of, you know, accepted and used in this period? The short answer to that would be to say that in times of peace, he had a great deal of difficulty in getting listened to, mm. whereas as soon as war came along, he found he was pushing on an open door. And indeed, uh, he wrote a very interesting uh, article in an American magazine in, in, in 1940 when the impact of war was already being felt in the United States, although it wasn't uh, yet a, um, a belligerent, in, in which he says more or less, isn't it strange how my ideas, it seems, will only be accepted uh, when we have a war on our hands, when suddenly the old orthodoxies about balancing the budget at all costs, restraining the power of the state on holding back uh, spending and investment, suddenly all of this is thrown out of the window and the war economy is allowed to run at full throttle, soaking up unemployment in a way that had never been fully possible between yeah. the wars. Would you say the the um, the impact of war was felt more keenly in in Britain or, or America? Do you think during this period? I think the impact of the First World War was felt much more keenly in Britain. Mm. Uh, we only have to look at the uh, total of war casualties. I think. Um, about 50,000 American uh, uh, servicemen uh, died in action uh, in, the, in the First World War. Uh, British uh, war casualties were of the order of 700,000. Those for the British Empire as a whole, over a million. Um, that's not to diminish the importance of the American uh, uh, commitment here, but I think it does put it... Um, into perspective. The impact of the First World War upon the USA was more economic, in a sense, uh, than it was directly military. Hmm. Um, the, the five men actually all met, didn't they, at the, the peace conference in Paris in, in 1919. Um, um, do we know what they, what they thought of each other um, and sort of the impact that, that each of the characters had on each other as well? On... If, we, if we've got five men and, and, they're, and they're, they're all in Paris and they have at least some opportunity for interaction with each other, uh, we have a number of different permutations as to how that could go. Uh, the two who uh, saw most of each other were undoubtedly Woodrow Wilson as American president and David Lloyd George as British prime minister, if you like, the special relationship in, in, in embryo. And uh, they had a somewhat guarded uh, uh, relationship, but um, they were often on, on, on the same page, even though they had uh, uh, different priorities here. Woodrow Wilson also met uh, Winston Churchill at that time. Not a very happy uh, <laughs> picture there. Uh, Wilson was suspicious of, of Churchill, especially for Churchill's plans of wanting to intervene in Russia against the uh, uh, Bolshevist uh, regime. The young Franklin Roosevelt, who was a junior member of uh, Woodrow Wilson's cabinet, he was 
uh, also in Britain in 1918 and 1919, and, and he met Winston Churchill too. He thought he was a stinker, according <laughs> to a later report as he gave it to uh, uh, Joseph Kennedy, the father of uh, the later president, uh, Kennedy. Uh, so not altogether a, um, a, a happy beginning to that relationship. Um, and uh, they had to uh, really recreate their relationship from the late 1930s in order to form um, the, the rather effective partnership that uh, went through the Second World War. What what sort of impact did the Versailles Treaty um, have on, on this locomotive of, of war? One of the outstanding things about the uh, Versailles Treaty is that one particular clause of it uh, retrospectively came to acquire enormous importance. This was the so-called war guilt clause. Now, some historians will tell you that there isn't a war guilt clause in the Versailles Treaty. And it's true. If if you look up something that is going to be labelled war guilt clause, you won't find one. But what you will find is um, an article there that, in fact, justifies morally as well as financially, that's very important, mm. morally as well as financially, the payment of reparations by Germany to the victorious allies. And what rankled in Germany subsequently was not, I think, so much the actual sums of money that were demanded, but the way that this was all framed as an issue of German war guilt. I think it's a very interesting question where this comes from. The most common explanation is to say that the liberals who made the treaty were suddenly overwhelmed by right-wing nationalistic uh, pressures for revenge and a vindictive, punitive peace. And there's something in that. But the forgotten element that I've hoped to retrieve here is the extent to which guilt was always seen through liberal spectacles as a moral issue and that the British and later the Americans accepted that Germany was guilty in starting the war, in violating Belgian neutrality in the first instance and then in pursuing it. And the issue of guilt really begins there. My argument is, my suggestion is, that by moralizing the origins of the war, the British and American liberals were as responsible as anybody, perhaps more responsible than anybody else, for moralizing the peace and making it into an issue of German war guilt. Okay. Is that a new way of thinking? Is, is this something that's, you know, I mean, how, how long is it taking you to sort of come to these, these conclusions? This was um, a conclusion that I came to in the, in the course of my own research mm. and in, in writing the book. It wasn't part of my agenda in the first place. Okay. And I can't say that I found any very obvious leads to it in all my many predecessors. They've written very many very fine books about the mm. um, uh, consequences of the uh, First World War. But I, I don't find there the emphasis upon guilt within these terms and indeed the origins of reparation mm. as a liberal issue that arises out of an attribution of guilt during the First World War. I really think this is something that ought to be given more attention, and I hope 
If people read my new book, they'll come to agree with me. That was Peter Clark. The Locomotive of War, Money, Empire, Power and Guilt is published today, the 9th of February, by Bloomsbury. And if you'd like to know more about the history of warfare, then you may well be interested in our World War II Day event, which is taking place on Sunday the 26th of February in Bristol's M-Shed. The day features talks from five leading historians as well as a buffet lunch. You can find out more details of this and also of our Victorians event, which takes place the day beforehand, at historyextra.com forward slash events. Meanwhile, the February edition of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's issue includes articles on Oliver Cromwell, the East India Company, Robin Hood, and medieval romance, among other things. You can get hold of our February issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it might still be an earlier issue that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we've currently got a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our second interview this week is with the historical author Isabel Sharman whose most recent book explores the Victorian origins of London's famous zoo and reveals some of the fascinating characters, both human and animal, who shaped its story. Our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with Isabel to find out more. Isabel, your new book is about the wild and wonderful founding of the London Zoo. Why was it a topic that interested you so much and why did you want to tell this story? I think... It's one of those things that on first glance, it's such a kind of unbelievable undertaking when you when you think about it, you know, in an era before trains even, before buses even, you know, and the idea of transporting huge wild beasts from one side of the world to the other to live in the middle of a city. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it grabs you on, on your first reading of it, these individual stories. But I think you find a lot of stories like that that are quite compelling on first glance. But then... Um, this was one that I think works on another level as well in that, yeah, it's fascinating and it's extraordinary and it's funny and it's, you know, heartbreaking, but it's also tells a much bigger story. And I think for me, that's what drew me to it is that actually it's a, it's a precinct, it's a contained world that in many ways reflects what's going on, you know, across Britain at this time. It's about empire, it's about science, it's about um, social change. For me, I find it quite hard to engage with kind of really huge histories and I like it when there's a small story that you've got characters you can follow and you know a a contained world that you can follow but through that you learn about the bigger context and I hope that's what you know I've achieved and managed to make it an enjoyable read for people but as they go they are learning about what was happening in the world around at the time. As you say it kind of draws on so many different areas of 
the Victorian age and what was so exciting about it. Why did you choose to focus on different characters per chapter in the way that you've done? I think because, you know, on the one hand, I think telling it through people, you know, I think history is about people, essentially, and it's about people that make history and and we can engage with people more easily we can, than we can necessarily engage with sort of big ideas. But it's also I wanted to, you know, there's been lots of books about the zoo, there's been books about Regency architecture, there's been books about Charles Darwin, and I suppose what fascinated me about the zoo as an institution was that it brings in all these things, you know, all these things are at play, and these people embody the different changes that are going on in society. And so by kind of focusing on, you know, it's quite a neat way of dividing it, sort of one chapter on... Raffles, which brings us into East India Company and Empire and a chapter on Burton about architecture and the rebuilding of London. And yes, but how they all kind of come together in this one institution. Mm -hmm. So if we had gone to London Zoo in 1828, what would we have seen? Would it have been anything like we would imagine a modern zoo or not? Probably not. And the the first thing to say would be that, you know, it wasn't open to the general public in in 1828. When it first opened, it would have been to the fellows of the society. So we wouldn't have been able to kind of go off the street and pay our entrance fee and go in. I mean, initially, when it very first opened, it was, you know, it wasn't kind of the spectacular animals that it became known for as it developed and as the public were let in more. So I think the very first animal they had was a vulture that was donated by an anatomist who had used this vulture to eat the corpses that he'd been he'd been working on. Um, so it's not the most glamorous crowd no, pleasers. Exactly. And I think they had, you know, one of the first animals that was reported in the newspapers was a Grecian ram um tied to a pole and they had a tame leopard. You know, things came in gradually. And it was also animals we wouldn't necessarily think of as particularly spectacular, like lots of dogs and lots of fowl. Because when the Zoological Society was founded, it was, on the one hand, to have a collection of animals for people to study and exotic animals they wouldn't necessarily know. But it also had a kind of domestic element. They wanted to improve, yeah, the animals that might be useful for British life. So what birds would be better to eat? Was there something to be gained from breeding a more exotic species with a domestic species. So it wasn't just about kind of glamorous tigers and lions and elephants. So it had kind of academic ideals at the basis of it more than entertainment. Oh, totally. You know, the point of it was that having these exotic animals on display was not a novel thing at all. There were menageries on the Strand. There was a a menagerie where you could go and see elephants and monkeys. And there were, you know, travelling menageries that went around the country. So the idea of displaying animals was not new. But what the Zoological Society wanted to do was to have them for a purpose. So it was completely about scientific study in the beginning. I think as it developed, they became aware that actually the people wanted to go and see lions and tigers and elephants. But it was very much about, yeah, a scientific endeavour. And connected to that, it wasn't just about the live animals, was it? No. So there were two institutions that were founded by the Zoological Society but actually there was a third one as well that didn't last very long. They had a farm. But the two main pillars of the of the society were establishment at Regent's Park for live animals, but then they had a museum, which was the idea there was they'd have, I think, as close as they could get to one of every living organism. They really wanted to reflect the whole animal kingdom as accurately as they could, having a stuffed animal, so one of every creature preserved and there for naturalists to go and look at and you know, almost as a kind of control, so they could go and say, okay, well, this is X bird. Oh, you know, so my one matches that. It was almost like this was the kind of model of the species. 
against which people could compare what they had. And it was a place of real study and where naturalists who were going off all around the world could kind of come back and, and have this resource. They could go and talk to the experts and see what it was they had, what, what they'd got in their hall from their explorations. But establishing this massive zoological gardens and the collection was, at the time, as you say, far from easy. There were a lot of challenges that the the founders faced. Can you run us through some of them? Well, first of all, it was mocked by people, this idea that they called it the Ark in London. Why did they mock it? I think because it was a pretty impossible undertaking. I think some people said, you know, great idea. Let's see how you're <laughs> going to manage this one. Um, I think it was the Literary Gazette said this is altogether visionary. You know, it's great on paper, but actually how are you going to bring this into being? I think also it might have been some confusion about their aims, their stated aim. They wanted to kind of investigate animals that might be of use domestically. So, um, you know, they kind of meant, yeah, for farming and, you know, transport and these kind of things. But one newspaper said, oh, they're going to propagate strange species of reptile all over the country. So, yeah, I think it was some kind of misunderstanding and because it was probably just a good story, you know, to laugh at it, same as as things are mocked today by the press because, you know, it sells papers. But it fairly quickly became a different matter once they kind of set up the various arms of the society. You know, it became quite fashionable and, yeah, a completely different matter once they'd seen that they were achieving it. But quite apart from the fact it was mocked, you also had the difficulty of transporting, of capturing and transporting animals across the world. You know, it's very different to today when you have animals bred in captivity and are then traded between all the different institutions. But at this point, if you wanted a giraffe, you had to go and get a giraffe from the desert in Sudan and bring it back halfway across the world. Yeah, the mortality rates were horrendous. Yeah, I've, I found it really heartbreaking to read lots of the stories, um, not just keeping animals, but the way they were captured as well. You know, young animals were easier to capture than older ones, so it was literally going and killing mothers and, and taking the young and you know, then you're better able to kind of control and tame them. But in terms of the way they were kept, there was a lot of effort on the part of the Zoological Society. It wasn't that they were, you know, willfully keeping animals in bad conditions. They really did not know what they needed. So, for example, like the elephant, their first elephant, the conditions the elephant was kept in was hugely different to how they would have been kept in travelling menageries or in the menagerie on the Strand. You know, it had a big paddock with a pool. You know, they knew, OK, they like water sort of really trying to approximate their natural habitation. But, you know, then on the other hand, they had a stool next to the enclosure where you could buy buns and cakes to feed to the elephant. So it's sort of, you know, a mixture of developing knowledge and, and attempts to kind of, yeah, accommodate the animals as might suit them, but with kind of real complete ignorance as to, to other matters. And I, I don't know if it did the elephant any harm eating all the sticky buns, but other animals, you know, it did, like the bears... One of the bears, I think, died from obesity because it was fed so many sweets and cakes. Um, and, you know, one of the main things was that they heated, they were obsessed with heating the the dens and enclosures because they thought these were animals from tropical climates. So they had to be kept in... Yeah, See, that warm. sounds quite logical. Well, exactly. That was them thinking, oh, so we'll replicate the conditions. Um, but, yeah, sort of in enclosed, airless, overheated spaces, terrible, terrible rates of mortality... And also it was about public display. So that was, it wasn't always just what they thought suited the animals. It was, oh, the monkeys need to be there to entertain the visitors. And, you know, so it's a mixture of, of kind of priorities here and the animals didn't always come off best from it. Do you think they reflected people's attitudes towards animals in society or do you think they were 
propagating kind of a new and forward-thinking idea. It was a society. It had lots of different characters that were all contributing to the management of it. And there were some real progressives who, you know, really pushed for scientific study of things like diet and climate and, you know, what conditions these animals could best be accommodated in. And there was others that perhaps just wanted to make sure they had people coming and could balance the books at the end of the year. So, you know, the society was run by the council, which was made up of all the different elected fellows to the council. And, yeah, so a number of different kind of personalities involved there and lots of clashes between, yeah, maybe more modernising spirits and people that were sort of old-fashioned and, yeah, not quite so open to change. So was the admission of the public just for money, to support everything else the society was doing? I mean, yes, it was. The tipping point was that there was this huge recession in the 1840s. There was, um, you know, there'd been cholera. It was a really dark time, really, for a lot of London. And the society was failing economically. They had massive problems. So they decided to let, you know, paying people in. But I also think it was a much wider background of societal reform at this point as well, you know, from political change in the 1830s, opening up the franchise, you know, a charterist. It was all this kind of, there was a lot of discussion in wider society about access to political power, but also to public institutions and knowledge. I mean, the zoo kind of, ultimately, they opened the gates because they needed the money, but it was at the end of a lot of debate about what its role in society was and how... Yeah, it had to it had to accommodate this yeah, social change, really, or or die. It was a matter of that it wasn't going to survive if they didn't, you know, adapt. So one of your chapters tells the story of a young Charles Darwin. What was his relationship with the zoo? Where we meet him is he's preparing to go off on his voyage on the Beagle, and he's a gentleman naturalist and and you know self funded. He doesn't he's quite removed from this world of sort of professional paid naturalists that were involved with the Zoological Society Museum. But the fact is that, you know, he needed their help to know he was going off into the big wide world. He didn't know how to kind of preserve specimens. He knew basic taxidermy from university, but he sought out their help as to how we should best catch these animals, preserve these animals. And then when he came back, he had boxes and boxes and boxes of dead animals and didn't know what they were, and more importantly, I suppose, what they meant. So his relationship with the Zoological Society was he needed their help. He sought out their expertise. And it was through the discussions with you know, their ornithologist, John Gould, that he knew what he had on his hands. He knew that he had some really fascinating specimens. And then he sort of went on and made sense of that and came up with his theories based on that. But he needed the expertise of these, you know, they called them museum naturalists as opposed to the kind of explorers like him that went off and actually discovered these things and killed these things and, and brought them back. It was yeah, sort of doing the more exacting work of kind of identifying them and naming them and putting them in their rightful place in the, in the natural order. And he also um, visited the zoo's monkey house quite a lot, which you infer might have informed his theory of evolution. Well, it was both really. I think it was it was identifying his... You know, how looking at how the birds he'd collected on the Galapagos Islands had adapted themselves to different island habitats. That was kind of the first the first step in his in coming, you know, realizing his theory. But then he yeah, added a lot of um sort of explored it and tested it by going and studying he has one particular orangutan that he spent a lot of time with Jenny and did a lot of tests on her and showing how the zoo was different then. You know, he was able to go and sort of 
carry out experiments on her. When I say experiments, I mean like giving her a mirror or sort of seeing how she reacted to language. And and yeah, he was kind of blown away by how clever she was and how she did understand language. And it kind of made him realise that this distinction that, you know, it was believed that there was such a gulf between man and any other animal. Um, and he sort of realised that wasn't that wasn't true. But I think it was a combination of hanging out with hanging out with it was the right term he went and sat with her and you know spent a lot of time with her but hanging out with and observing Jenny and the other monkeys and apes but but also with this having consulted the museum staff about his stuffed animals his his stuffed birds you know I like the fact that it always came back to the zoo with him lots of his studies came back to the experts at the zoo and the animals at the zoo yeah, so I mean, undoubtedly it played a huge role in his development of his theories. You focus, as well as Darwin, on a lot of different people who were fundamental in the foundation of the zoo. Who are some of your absolute favourites and why? Who do you think's the most intriguing characters? I mean, it's hard to say. There's a difference, isn't there, between who's my favourite and who was my favourite to write. Because I think my favourite person to write was John Gould, who was the museum taxidermist and then the ornithologist. But I wouldn't say he's my favourite person. Um, I found him intriguing because I don't think he was particularly likeable. But I kind of got him straight away. You know, he was from a very humble background and he worked incredibly hard and made the most of, you know, all the opportunities that came his way. He was a young man. He was the son of a gardener at Windsor who had started making money as a teenager by stuffing some of the birds, the dead birds, and selling them to the students at Eton. Um, you know, he was a real entrepreneur, and so became a very good taxidermist. And then when the Zoological Society was looking for, you know, they needed a staff taxidermist, as it were. They had so many dead creatures coming in that needed preserving properly that, yeah, he got the job. They they gave them a, a test. Him and various other applicants for the job were given a stuffing test and he, you know, stuffed the animal the best, so got the job. But, yeah, it's, I love the way he worked his way up through the institution from, yeah, a humble taxidermist to the head of the ornithological department. I find that interesting because I think it's knowledge was the power then, you know, in a society that was so, I mean, it was changing massively, but had been for so long so class-based and wealth-based. And I think the idea that there was this new economy of knowledge and he was able to work his way up because he worked harder and knew more and made himself indispensable. And, you know, I think that's one of the nice things about the society is that lots of the characters weren't necessarily very wealthy or kind of particularly important people starting out. They managed to, through their expertise in this new world, you know, it's a very untested science. It was people didn't know much, but by these people forging their way through this new world, they're able to to win status and, and power for themselves. Yeah, I was struck by the story of um, the veterinary surgeon or medical attendant, they called him, didn't they? Yeah. Who was only 22 and he was in charge of the entire zoo, which now would just seem Well, and not outrageous. only that, in charge of the entire zoo, but having done a seven-month course studying horses, <laughs> and then suddenly, OK, here you go, then, you know, here's this sick lion or these sort of kangaroos that are throwing themselves at the fences. And the thing to remember there, though, is reading, you know, you read his journals, and he, him and his successor wrote very detailed notes about the animals they were treating and what treatments they were giving them. And, you know, you read that and it's sort of giving them an enema or, you know, mercury or foxgloves. And you think, well, this is barbaric. But looking back now, it is. But the fact is, these were the same treatments that humans were getting at the time, actually. I mean, the state of medical knowledge was pretty poor. And, yeah, so they just kind of applied these same principles to these poor animals. What were some of the kind of most remarkable 
stories you came across or incidents? Was there an escaped rhino? Oh, yes, the rhino escaped from its paddock because its keeper was drunk. There's quite a lot of stories of yeah, intoxicated keepers and sort of fights and stuff. The thing is, you have to bear in mind that also the records were being kept by the, you know, not by the keepers themselves. So there may have been a little bit of, of prejudice there. But, you know, there was a whole committee of inquiry into the fact that lots of the keepers were keeping beer shops and sort of selling beer just outside from the houses very near to the zoo. And, and it was kind of, they were reprimanded for that. They couldn't be drunk and they couldn't have these sideline businesses um, selling beer. So I think they were probably a fairly rough bunch. But having said that, I'm sure it was a fairly hard job and actually... You know, I'm sure I would have wanted a drink at the end of the day. But no, there are lots of, yeah, kind of crazy stories. And I mean, I think the most interesting ones are the ones about how they actually acquired the animals. And once the animals had got to British shores, which, you know, in itself was, you know, a miracle really in lots of cases, because um, most of the animals didn't arrive alive either. You know, sometimes they had to be killed on the way because, for example, a leopard they tried to bring over or a ship's captain tried to bring over escaped on board ship and then had to be shot and thrown overboard, or animals that died from, from yeah, these long, long sea journeys. But, I mean, I suppose where it gets really remarkable is when these animals arrived in sort of London, London docks, and then to get them to the zoo, they'd, they'd walk them through the streets because, you know, if you've got an elephant, actually it's much easier just to walk it than to try and put it on some kind of cart or, or anything. Um, by the end of the period, they are coming on trains, some of them. But, um, yeah, so the idea of, you know, reading newspaper articles about an elephant that's just been shipped from Madras, you know, by way of China. So it's been months and months on board ship, turning up in the London docks, being offloaded and walking through the streets of London and apparently running so fast the keepers had to kind of run to keep up with him and it was plucking hats off ladies' heads. And when you think of it now, these parts of London that we know and, you know, had these kind of, yeah, wild animals being led through them it's yeah it feels feels very exotic and and the zoo also had the first hippo in England is that correct the thing to remember is it's not just the first of its kind on these shores this is an age before even photography so people had not only not seen a live hippo they'd never even seen a picture of a hippo and so suddenly to have one in the flesh in the middle of your city I think it's hard for us nowadays to imagine because we're so au fait with with wild animals even if we don't see them in zoos, we've, we see nature documentaries all the time. We see photographs. So this idea that, yeah, suddenly you were confronted with this animal that you'd, you know, kind of thought was almost mythical. And, um, yeah, kind of descriptions of lots of them before they arrived, completely off. The first drawings of giraffes were of these kind of bizarre creatures because someone had described one to someone and then someone had done a kind of, oh, is it a bit like this? And, you know, and then to people seeing a giraffe, a real giraffe, living giraffe, for the first time was, yeah, mind-blowing. Wild animals were sort of more a part, perhaps, of, of everyday life, the common ones. So you might see monkeys in the street, you know, in terms of someone would be having a monkey on a string. and you know. But I think these big, really exotic animals and seeing them in kind of something like their natural setting, so, yeah, a hippopotamus in a pool would have been, yeah, just incredible. We can't imagine now what, what that must have been like. That was Isabel Sharman. The Zoo, the wild and wonderful tale of the founding of London Zoo, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. And in the US, it's due to be released in April by Pegasus. And now it's time to rejoin Ellie for this week's History News. 
Experts from the UK and Brazil have used drones to identify 450 earthworks hidden in the Amazon rainforest. Thought to date from the beginning of the 1st century AD, the circular ditched enclosures were previously covered by trees, but have recently been revealed by deforestation. The evidence suggests that settlers were clearing large sections of the rainforest 2,000 years ago. Termed geoglyphs, the earthworks bear several similarities to other Neolithic sites, such as Stonehenge, experts suggest. It is likely that the geoglyphs were used for similar functions, i.e. public gatherings or as ritual sites. Their format, with an outer ditch and an inner wall enclosure, are what classically describe henge sites, said Dr Jennifer Watling, the researcher who led the project. In other news, the face of a 12th century saint from Orkney has been digitally reconstructed to mark the 900th anniversary of his death. Saint Magnus, also known as Magnus Erlinson, was a Norse earl whose life and death are recounted in the early medieval Orkneyinga saga. He is believed to have been brutally murdered during a power struggle with his cousin in the early 1100s. Forensic artist Hugh Morrison created the computer-generated reconstruction using photographs of what is said to be Magnus's skull taken in the 1920s. The skull itself is now interred in a pillar inside Orkney's St Magnus Cathedral. OK, well that's about it for this week's episode, but please do listen in next time when historians Pankaj Mishra and Tom Holland will be exploring the historical roots of 21st century anger. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.